about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Good evening. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's uh, a privilege to open up this new series for us on Daniel. It's going to be a very interesting book, uh, full of challenging stuff. And so it's, uh, it's exciting to open uh, it up for us. Keep your Bible open. Daniel 1, hold me accountable to what's there. Um, and I wonder, just start by asking this question, I wonder if you've ever felt uh, displaced. I felt dis- the disorientation from moving to one place to a new place. Um, I spent some time in the Shire after I got married, uh, the good old Shire down south, God's country as they might say, and I had to move to Western Sydney for work. Whew, that was a season of disorientation, a lame one at that. Uh, just last week we were doing the service, um, uh, not the service rooms, I hope, the, um, uh, the room for many, and we were collecting goods to partner with the Asylum Seeker Centre. Far from a humorous example, um, that centre does incredible work helping families who are seeking asylum. Uh, who have go- who are going through a horrendous experience of disorientation, of displacement, uh, escaping uh, persecution and suffering and trying to find a home in, in this place, in this country. Israel is going through uh, something very similar, something very uh, heartbreaking, uh, disorienting. Uh, they are very confused and they are being persecuted. Uh, see, what had happened is that Israel had kind of flourished uh, in some ways as a, kind of, as a kingdom. They had their kings, they had their gods, so they thought, and everything kind of made sense to them. Uh, they thought that God was on their side, they had all these promises that God would bless them, that they would be a blessing to the world, and so they got comfortable. In fact, they even stopped listening to God because they were so comfortable in their surrounds. They thought, oh, God's got our back. But what happened, as we kind of read in these opening verses, is that the Lord handed them over. Uh, there's a long story behind that. I'm happy to chat to you another time about that. You might have seen some of it in the series we did during this year on Samuel. But what happened is that uh, those Babylonians, the superpower of the day, roll into Israel, demolish their sacred temple, uh, and take uh, all the holy articles that they kind of treasured so much and brought them into the temple of their gods. They were dragged across the plains between Israel and Babylon. And they sat on the river in Babylon, weeping. We know from Psalm 137 that they were taunted. The Babylonians would say, sing your songs of Zion. (laughs) And they say, how can we sing these songs? Where is our God? We are a hopeless and a broken people. Not only persecuted, but now have lost everything we have found identity and comfort in. This is the beginning and the predicament of Daniel. Some have found kind of in in sort of 2019 some kind of resonance, uh, but I I hardly see it to the scale of this. Uh, If you want to read about what it means to be persecuted as a Christian in 2019, sign up to those devotions that we're handing out in the morning. Uh, The work of Open Doors and the way they serve the persecuted church across the world is incredible and humbling. And it'll be an honor to pray with those Christian brothers and sisters uh, through that. Um, Yes, our kind of public spaces are changing very quickly, and sometimes Christianity finds itself in the minority. Uh, Hardly uh, an issue of persecution, perhaps, 
Uh, but nonetheless, we're going to find some resources in Daniel to help us uh, live for Jesus uh, in, in a world that changes like shifting sands. When you think about Daniel's predicament and the Israelite predicament uh, back in this example, back in this story, you've got to ask yourself the question, what would you say to them? What would you say to lift them up from the kind of the sadness, from the weeping as they sat on the river of Babylon? What kind of spiritual resources did they need to be able to find hope again for a hopeless people? And what kind of ways did they need to re-understand God's sovereignty? I mean, that's a big one, right? Because they've rested on the laurels of kind of God's got this covered, and now they find themselves, the temple where he, where he dwelt is ruined and on fire, and they're no longer living in his presence. He's left. He's gone. Where is he? How does this let this happen? How are they going to find inroads back into understanding who is God for them? What they need is a non-anxious faith. They need faith to start with. They need a non-anxious version of that, to reapproach God in this very anxious uh, space. They need wisdom. We need wisdom on how to live out our identity for God in a world that doesn't recognize Him. In this series, we're going to be exploring faith, courage, wisdom, identity, all that we might know how the Lord reigns in Babylon. And by that, I mean a world that doesn't know him. Daniel is a kind of, is a simple and complicated book all at once. I mean, some of us will know the kind of like Sunday school uh, felt board stories of Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, you know, you kind of might laugh a little bit about that. We'll, we'll get, that'll come up as we look through Daniel. Uh, what we might not be familiar with maybe is the back half of Daniel. So in chapter 7, uh, it transitions quite significantly into sort of more of an apocalyptic kind of book. Uh, there's a number of examples of apocalyptic literature in the Old and New Testaments, and that's usually kind of designed to give a hopeless minority people a cosmic perspective, that God really does have it entirely in control. And that serves the people in Daniel. Daniel's gonna, God's going to show through the first six chapters how God is at work in their current circumstances, and then he's going to blow their minds as they look to the cosmic perspective to say God really does have the whole thing in control. I'll send out an email this week, um, kind of pointing you to, and you just Google it, to um, the Bible Projects video on Daniel. It's a really helpful kind of overview of Daniel and might help you get into this book. But as we start, as we really dig into these verses, having laid some of the kind of outline, let me pray. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us see you afresh this morning, uh, this evening, that as we kind of bring our anxious hearts into your presence, for whatever's going on in our life. Father, help us to see that you do have things in control, that you are someone to be trusted, and you are someone that we can be courageous for. How would you speak through me tonight, that your words might be powerful and that you might work by your spirit in the hearts of everyone here. Amen. Well, like every good narrative, the predicament is set. Where is God? Where is hope? Um, keep the scriptures open, as I said. In the opening verses, the camera zooms out from the Israelite temple that's ablaze, uh, and we are sort of taken across the vast plains to the expansive kingdom of Babylon and into its very heart, to through the window of the grand palace and at the very center of the very courtroom of uh, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, we meet Ashpenaz, the chief of the court officials. We're kind of in the very inner sanctum of Babylon, as it were. 
Read with me in halfway through verse 3. Some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude of every kind of learning, uh, perfect specimens as it were, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. These are the elites from the conquered kingdom. Could you imagine just how much of a head explosion that would have been? They are the elites of the conquered kingdom. That is, uh, just a few years prior to this, they were the culture setters. They were the ones that had uh, prowess, had standing, had nobility. They were well respected. All of that is now nothing, not a thing. Uh, They're only going to be something in as much as they're reprogrammed for new service. Just get your head around that. We don't do very well losing the things that define us. If you lost your standing at work, if you lost respect of peers, that would be a very difficult time. This is that and then some. See, what they're about to go under is this kind of disorienting, purposefully so, uh, kind of indoctrination. They're going to be reprogrammed. Uh, And it's kind of a military tactic in a way to sort of shame the conquered kingdom and to then release kind of new people for greater service in the new regime. We see three steps to this kind of reprogram, this indoctrination phase. Firstly, they'd be taught the language and literature of the Babylonians. Now, this no doubt would have included kind of, you know, everything that made up Babylonian culture. This was going to be kind of like the way that they would learn not just how to speak the language of the Babylonians, but how to think like Babylonians. It would include all their pagan practices, magic, how to be Babylonian. They would receive a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, surely sort of a perk of the course. And then they would receive new names. And we're kind of like, our new names? But names are really important in ancient culture. They kind of are really attached to identity. Hence kind of the commandment, do not use the Lord's name in vain. They would receive new names to replace their Hebrew names. Their Hebrew names, like Daniel, for instance, means in Hebrew, God is my judge. Uh, or kind of... Hananiah means God is gracious. So they have all these kind of God-centered, identifying names. And they're going to be replaced with Babylonian names. So Daniel's going to become Belshazzar. Bel is the Babylonian god. So it kind of reads, Bel protect the king. Could you imagine receiving that name? Having had nobility in Israel, having had standing, and having a name that kind of says, God is great, basically. And now they have a new way of thinking. Being, being kind of thrown down their throat, and they're given new names that kind of shame Yahweh, the God of Israel, and honor the Babylonian king, or the Babylonian gods. This would have been an incredible and challenging season. This would go on for three years. Three years of being reprogrammed. How would you fare, do you think? What would you do? I actually think this is just the half of it. Because as I've already suggested, what's underlying this process of indoctrination was it was the deeper despair of feeling abandoned by God. Where are you, God? How could you let this happen? I wonder if we are not in the same explicit kind of reprogramming deal. We're not being indoctrinated explicitly like this. I wonder if we risk being conquered by comfort. Just as a little aside, I wonder if we replace sort of the kingdom vision of blessed be those who are persecuted, 
Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are selfless peacemakers. I wonder if we replace that with blessed are the nice, are the comfortable. And that's how we're reprogrammed. A kingdom vision without a king like Jesus, perhaps. Well, whatever kind of the situation is for us and for Daniel, I find what Daniel shows us just truly remarkable. Because he shows us what it looks like to live out a conviction and at the same time seek the welfare of others who are living under an entirely different script to himself. So it's pretty easy to say, look, I'll I'll do whatever I want. I don't care what you think. That's easy. That's 2019 all over. But what Daniel does is he says, actually, I'm going to stand on my conviction and I'm going to bless those around me. An ability to be uh, stand on your convictions and to be compassionate, to love those around you. That is something truly remarkable. And that's what we get to explore, how Daniel kind of navigates that. Because the camera zooms in a little further. And for the first time, we see Daniel's heart. Verse 8 is where kind of the hinge is here. And it's not an anxious heart. I've been struck again and again by the way that these four characters, these four Israelites, are presented so calmly in what would be anything but calm for me. Verse 8, Daniel resolved. I think those are the two words that, that ring out for me as, I, as we zoom into the very character and heart of Daniel. Daniel resolved. His wise and courageous response is simple and and rich. It demonstrates a shrewd assessment of how things are unfolding and what it means to live out his true, underlying, unshakable, resolved identity as a man of God. So he said to the officials, having been resolved, I'll enter your courts and I'll seek to influence your policy. And I'll eat your food, but I won't listen to another word of your rubbish paganism. And how dare you desecrate the name of the God that I serve with the pagan name you've given me. <laughs> that's not what he says, is it? His, uh, his fundamental belief doesn't manifest in sort of simple fundamentalism. Instead, he resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. (laughs) That's a strange hill to die on, do you reckon? Why does he do that? Why is that the thing that he is resolved not to do? And even ask permission to not be defiled in that way. Well, some think maybe it's kind of an issue of obedience. It's kind of like going back to the Levitical command to not eat food sacrificed to idols. Quite likely that's in play. Although the vegetarian option he's going to go for probably is going to be tainted by the same thing. And in chapter 10, we see that he goes back to choice meat and wine. So this is not an absolute command that he's following. It's more complicated than that. We don't really get privy to exactly why Daniel resolves to do this. And I wonder if that's not the thing. We're not reading this to find the imperative that we are meant to follow exactly. We're meant to see the heart of Daniel. Because whatever the case is, Daniel has found resolved to draw a line, to make a stand, to make his absolute and fundamental identity with God known in his context. 
And it's a bold move. Ashpenaz, his head is on the table for this. Because if, if he goes down this path and kind of reject, rejects the choice food to go the vegetarian option, and uh, some people have made whole books on kind of Daniel's diet. I don't think that's the point either. Uh, he goes down this kind of vego option. If Daniel doesn't look good, if he doesn't honor the king in the way that he's presentable, then the king will have Ashpenaz's head. And he knows that. Ashpenaz knows that. So here is a context of fear. Many of the Israelites have good reason to fear their circumstances. Aspenaz fears his life, perhaps. And yet Daniel does not fear, but acts in faith. And his final appeal in verse 13 is just incredible. He says, treat your servants in accordance with what you see. That is, I am resolved to make my stand, and you judge what happens. Wow. He's resolved to live out his godliness, and he puts himself in a position to be vindicated or otherwise. See, the fear that Daniel has is singly a fear of the Lord. The fear that Daniel has is singly a fear of the Lord, which, according to Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom. And I think that's what Daniel is displaying here. Not just faith, he certainly has that, but faith applied in his context, wisdom. I am found on the internet, as sometimes we do, uh, just this cute little video by a novelist. Um, her name is Maria Popova, and she, as a novelist, uh, kind of really sees that we are living in an age of information and disinformation. And she, as a storyteller, sees the power of storytelling to rebuild moral frameworks, to sort of tell the story that we live in, uh, escaping just kind of the data-centric kind of ways of the modern world, and to actually live in the story. I'm telling you that because she has an incredible insight to what wisdom is, and I found it really simple. She's not a Christian, but I just found it really simple to sort of hang some hooks on. She describes wisdom as knowing how the world works and how it ought to work, and being, being able to navigate the tension. I think that is super simple. Knowing how the world works and knowing how it ought to work. Now, the real trick is knowing how it ought to work, and philosophers have been debating that for a long time. But as Christians, I see that definition is really helpful because when we look at the world, we know how it works in its brokenness, in how it presents itself. And we have a robust framework to understand that in sin uh, and how things are, are broken, but yet there's still the image of God on display in this broken world. And we know how it ought to work because Jesus points us to the kingdom of God and he lives that out, he embodies it. And so we're able to see these two things in play how things are working right in front of us and how things ought to work. And we're able to actually hold those in tension. And I think that's what we're seeing in Daniel. He knows how things are playing out before him. He knows the predicament he's in, as scary as it is. And yet he's not scared by it because he also knows how things ought to work. And in wisdom, he lives out this resolve to live for God because in that tension, he's drawn a line. He's drawn a line of what it means to live for God in this broken world and as he lives for God. And what happens? It's quite incredible, isn't it? Read with me verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine and they were to, they were, they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. 
And through this process, God increases their wisdom. And we keep seeing this language of wisdom again and again, particularly through the narrative of Daniel. So we get to verse 19. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. That is remarkable. Here is Daniel essentially competing for wisdom with those who have grown up in Babylonian culture, the best of the best. And here he is, only here for a little while, having resolved to live for God and not for the Babylonian king. And his wisdom is greater than all the wisdom that's on display. Why is that? Because Daniel has tapped into an appreciation of how the world works, and he knows the one who is calling the world into a better way of being. And he's choosing to follow God above all others. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it. Godly wisdom works because God reigns. God's been there all along. In fact, if you go through the narrative, you see the way that God has been working his ways through every bit. So even verse 2, when we talk about the horrendous uh, experience of being exiled, there he is, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. So that is an act of God's judgment on an evil king, even though he's a Jewish king. Or maybe in verse 9, we're looking at Aspenes, who gives permission for Daniel to deviate according to the kind of king's plan on what to eat. That is the Lord turning the heart of the chief official to allow Daniel to do this. Or in verse 17, it's the Lord that gives Daniel and his friends the wisdom to put on display. There the Lord is working his ways because the Lord reigns. His wisdom is supreme. But godly wisdom isn't always simply vindicated like we see in this chapter. This idea of vindication, we're going to see repeated again and again. And God's doing something really special in this season to show the Israelites that they are to have hope and that God is at work, very particularly. But godly wisdom isn't always simply vindicated because we live in a world that doesn't recognize him. There's a myriad of examples. You might even be living in those where you're still waiting for godly wisdom to be vindicated because it's not working out as simply as you thought. I couldn't help but think of William Carey, who founded the modern missionary movement, went to India for 20 years and didn't see any fruit of being a missionary in that place. In that 20-year season, did not see one person come to faith and he watched his son die of dysentery. I feel the stinging rebuke of kind of my instant experientialism. It's like I'll give God a try, like he's an app, and if it doesn't work right there and then, I'm kind of like, oh, come on, God. 20 years he worked. There's no simple vindication in 20 years of godly wisdom and practice. But yet after that 20 years, he did see someone come to faith, and a whole bunch of amazing things happened so that he could birth a whole missionary movement. And of course, we see this kind of uh, not-so-simplistic vindication at the very center of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who died upon a cross so that everyone would say, that's your wisdom, that's God's wisdom, looks pretty foolish to me. One of the first pieces of graffiti art around Christianity is kind of uh, a donkey uh, on, a, on, a, on a cross. That's your God, silly donkey. Except that 
It was when the world thought that God's wisdom was foolish that Jesus Christ rose from the dead because God reigns. His wisdom is good. 1 Peter has a lot to say on this as well. 1 Peter is kind of like the Daniel equivalent of the New Testament. Uh, There, the Peter, the apostles, writing to Christians who are scattered throughout the kind of diaspora of the early church, having been persecuted and having to leave kind of the comforts of their home and their understanding of Christianity in a way. And so there are these Christians saying, where is this wisdom? Where is God at work? I'm feeling kind of really overwhelmed by all that's happening. This is not working out how I planned. And so Peter writes to them, as we've read from that second passage, keep doing good, he he exhorts them. And by doing good, you might silence foolish talk. Now, of course, that seems to be continually complicated. Because as we practice this godly wisdom of living out how we see how things should work according to God's commands and according to the embodiment of the kingdom in Jesus, as we live that out, it doesn't seem to simply silence foolish talk. People still think I'm an idiot for being a Christian. And I get it. It looks foolish. Gone are the days where Christianity was merely banal and tolerated. Many see Christianity as malignant, even evil. So what does it look like to continue doing good? Not according to the world's approval, but according to God and his version of the way things ought to work. That takes great wisdom, great perseverance, great courage. The thing is, it is only God alone who reigns eternal. And while our culture is like sifting sifting sand, kind of moving from one place to the next, changing its opinions on how things ought to work from here to here, there is only one God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his name is Jesus Christ. And when you're listening to him, ought it not give us a non-anxious ability to stand in those shifting sands and to live for God alone? That sounds simple, but we really need these words from Daniel. And as we use Daniel to look to Jesus, that we might continue to stand steadfast in our faith. That we might be able to engage in culture, not just flee from it. As things kind of heat up a little bit in the public space and in terms of religion and Christianity particularly, it will be very easy to take the Benedict option to kind of remove ourselves from culture, form a little holy huddle, and kind of make our community amazing. But that's not what Jesus has called us to do. Jesus places us in his world to shine his wisdom, that we might do good and that they might glorify God for doing so. It might not be simple and it might not be quick, but that's what we're called to do, to show the world Jesus. And in Daniel, we find an incredible example of someone who is steadfast in their faith and highly engaged in culture to even influence uh, the kingdom leadership at the highest levels. And we're going to see that play out in multiple ways. And when I think about living this wisdom out, living in kind of a, a world that doesn't recognize the God who I follow, I kind of find these two categories quite helpful, working out how I resonate with culture and how I dissonate with culture, if that's a word, the opposite. You know, to resonate with culture and sort of see uh, that I might actually understand where they're coming from and find actually that I have similar virtues or visions of how things should be done. But also dissonate, ready to be handed over to the chief priests of culture. 
because I know that my version of what it means to live out God's ways are not going to be the same way entirely with those around me. And there's going to be seasons where that is going to be tough. I've had some great conversations this week with people wrestling with what it looks like to live out this wisdom, this godly wisdom with resolve. How do we work out where to draw the line to live for God and to stand up in faith and when to kind of pull back and, uh, and just keep going forward? Someone who's in management I spoke to this week was tempted by her level of leadership, which is quite significant. And even at a conference uh, recently attended, uh, there is a continued culture of workaholism pushed and pushed, so much so that the success measure for her level of leadership is how many hours uh, the people who report to her will work for her overtime at no extra cost. That's, how, that's kind of what level of success looks like in her culture. And so she's wrestling with, what does it look like to be a Christian in that place? To not see those people as kind of just working for her and, kind of, and to just deliver a success metric but for her to be in leadership and and to serve those people. What does it look like to make a stand on that, knowing that your career might be put on hold if you're not as successful as others? In that case, you're handing yourself over to be vindicated or not. But either way, you're being resolved to draw a line to live for God and His vision for how you should be in the workplace. Or how about a friend of mine who just constantly finds himself uh, in the middle of gay culture and just loves it? He said to me the other day he was invited to a song and cycle spin class where he was the, clearly the only straight guy in the room. And uh, feeling that niggle of kind of like, what if they find that I'm a Christian? What if they turn around and kind of like just hate on me? Found himself in a position of being able to love deeply and being able to get to know uh, these people around him. Resolved to kind of still stand on his conviction and to be a deep listener and to cut a long story short, he finds himself praying with one person particularly that they might find love and true love at that in Jesus Christ. In those conversations, he's able to articulate his understanding of marriage based on the scriptures and his vision for sexuality. These are incredible conversations, but it began with a resolve to kind of stand in his convictions and then to engage culture. But what about going out for drinks on Friday night with mates and drawing a line to only have two drinks? that you might actually put a stand, make a stand that your vision of how you spend your time and your money and your leisure is not defined by mateship and drunkenness, but on a vision of how God sees the flourishing life. There's no command in Scripture to say only drink two drinks, but what line are you going to draw to say that I'm resolved to live for Jesus and I'm going to make that known? There'll be countless more examples, and I think actually it's a really good exercise to open up conversation about where are you feeling the tension of this? Where do you feel the weight of this? And how on earth do you go about drawing a line to be resolved? As you think about this, as God brings things to your heart and to your mind, some of us are going to need to repent of unwise engagement with culture that we might refine resolve. Some of us might need to repent of a timidity and need a spirit-empowered courage to re-engage culture. Either way, each of us are going to have to explore the scriptures that we might find the grander vision of how the world ought to work and how Jesus wants us to live in the place and the time that he has put us. Church, I feel, is at the center of this dynamism where we're kind of gathered to be fed and to find this vision refreshed in our hearts and minds. 
and that we might be then sent back out into culture, and that we might kind of take up what it means to be in the places that God has put us to serve Him and those around us. It's challenging. At times, culture will feel very hostile. And yet at the same time, in my experience, for as much as people talk about hostile culture to Christianity, my experience is that in the middle of all of this, there is a great openness, a great curiosity. Let's press into that. Let's explore that. But above all things, let us be resolved to live for God and for Him alone. Let me pray. Father, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for the way that You have shown Yourself to be true and good through all things. I thank You that You have died for us and that as much as that looked like absolute foolishness to the world, You have shown Your wisdom to be true and good, especially to those who trust in Him and now enjoy new life in Him because He has no longer stayed dead but has raised to life. And so, Father, now give us that resurrection power to live out the lives you call us to in the places you've put us. In Jesus' name, amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.